This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work are premiering on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, as well as mine, at Laura Zarrow. Our full catalog of past shows are available wherever you get your podcasts. So just search on Laura Zarrow and Women at Work, and you will find us. When we talk about how racism and sexism show up at work, how it's experienced, how it's perpetuated, we tend to think of people's roles in simple terms. Were they the one harmed or the one doing the harm? Are they part of the problem or part of the solution? Boiling these questions down to basics belies the fact that so many of us are actually all of the above, which is why today's guest is right on time. Kim Scott is the author of the extraordinarily important book, Just Work. Get shit done fast and fair. More so than any other book I've read on the topic, and that list is now getting kind of long. <laughs> Kim shows us how to see, understand, and address workplace injustice in ways we can all put to use. This isn't surprising, though, when you think about what a rock star innovator Kim is. She's the co-founder of the company Radical Candor and a brand new organization called Just Work. Formerly a CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, and Twitter, and a member of the faculty at Apple University, Kim led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick teams at Google, managed a pediatric clinic in Kosovo, and started a diamond-cutting factory in Moscow. We last talked with her when she joined us to discuss her last book, Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity, and we are honored to have her back with us today. So, Kim, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. It's a thrill to be back. So in the very beginning of the book, you share this discovery that you had, which for me was a revelation, both to see it written out and to see somebody acknowledging it, that you could be both victim and perpetrator. Yeah. Can you share with us how you came to understand that and the feelings that came up as you did? Yeah. It, you know, when you write a book uh, about feedback, which Radical Candor very much was, you're going to get a lot of feedback. And so <laughs> <laughs> here's some of the feedback I got shortly after Radical Candor came out. I was I was giving a presentation at a tech company in San Francisco, and the CEO of that company was a, had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade, somebody I really liked and respected. And she, she's also one of too few black women in tech. And, uh, and she pulled me aside after the, after the presentation and she said, I'm really excited to, to roll out Radical Candor on the team, Kim. I think it's gonna help me build the kind of culture that I'm looking to build. But she said, I gotta tell you, it's a lot harder for me to put it into practice than it is for you. And I'm willing to bet it's a lot harder for you to put it into practice for, than it is for the men who we work with. And I knew she was right. It made me have three revelations all at the same time. One was that I had failed to be the kind of upstander that I see myself as. I, I had failed to notice how unfailingly pleasant 
this CEO always was. <laughs> and, and also, you know, I knew in the better part of a decade, she had what to be pissed off about. And, and I had failed to consider what, what toll that must have taken on, on her to have to show up is always unfailingly pleasant. So I had failed to be an upstander. I also realized that I had failed to notice not only the things that were happening to her, but the things that were happening to me. The harm that had been done to me as a result of sexism in the workplace. And last but not least, I realized all of a sudden that I had failed to be the kind of leader very often that that would create kind of <laughs> rules and regulations that would prevent this stuff from from happening to so many people in the workplace. So that was that was a big drink of water to swallow, but <laughs> but, but but that was when I realized I need to sit down and write this book, Just Work. So in that, Kim, is a lot of um, humility and, you know, self-deprecating humor that comes with it. When I read uh, Radical Candor, um, one of the things that I took away from it was I felt like it was this amazing tool for how to co create more innovative collaboration in a healthy way that was actually the cover for a lot of discussion of what we experience as women in the workplace. Yeah. And so I really appreciated that this is the next step forward in learning how to advance that for everybody. Yeah. Um, but and I think something you said right there is really important, the cover. Like I, in many ways, Radical Candor was kind of a guerrilla feminist text. And yet, I failed to notice the irony. Why was I being clandestine in a book called Radical Candor? <laughs> but there's a lot to that. At the time when you were writing it, did you feel like that was the way to get people to absorb it? I think when I wrote, this is a hard confession for the author of Radical Candor to make, but I think I was still in denial, actually, about the things that had happened to me. I was like, oh, no, I haven't really had too many bad experiences. And then when I sat down to really think about it and to write Just Work, I, I realized, oh, my gosh, I have experienced some form of workplace injustice every hour of every day of my career at the very <laughs> least bias i had i thought i was going to have to interview people and get other people's stories and i realized i had no shortage of stories just from my own career as you started to plumb those stories though you tapped into things that for most people are really hard to wrestle with never mind share with other people things like shame and guilt and confusion about experiences that were not as cut and dry as we'd like them to be sometimes. How did you make your way through that emotionally? You know, in many ways, it was a relief. It was it was very it was it was very healing to write this book. I, you know, I have always kept a journal, and so in a lot of ways, when I sit down to write the first draft of a book, I write it with the with the same spirit that I write my journal. And so I wasn't really thinking about the fact that a lot of other people were going to read this, to be honest. I think I didn't fully understand that until shortly before the book came out. And, and then I, I, I sort of had a moment of panic, I, I will confess, like, oh, my gosh, I was thinking I was writing for myself, but now all these other people are going to read my journal. <laughs> Well, I got to tell you on a very personal level, as I was reading it and I went in, I'm like, this is cool. I love the vocabulary. I love the structures. I love the tools you're giving us. But as I got deeper and deeper into it, it brought up memories of things I had suppressed um, yeah. that were actually quite complicated to process. And I was even more 
I mean, then I was even more grateful because I admired the candor that you brought to it and that it um, it's part of what helped me relate to it and see how complicated it is to address this stuff because we have to do it. it if I'm reading all of this and understanding it, that the work that we do is multi-pronged because we have to do some work in ourselves, some work for ourselves and some work on behalf of other people. Am I getting yeah. it? Absa couldn't have said it better myself. Absolutely. Uh, and I think, you know, we're living right now through through a period in which people are very apt to point fingers at each other. Mm-hmm. And I really tried, if I was going to point a finger, I was going to point it at myself. Uh, not because I think I'm a horrible person. I actually think I did okay. But, yeah, you're pretty awesome. Yeah, but but I don't know, pretty awesome. But but you know, I'm there are worse people. That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, and, and so, so, but I wanted to point the finger at myself because if we can't understand the, you know, as my son's base, baseball coach said, you can't do right if you don't know what you're doing wrong. And so, so I felt like that was a better way to proceed. So, um, as you did that, um, I'm going to share an example. You know, one of the things that you shared with us was a story of when you realized that you were bullying um, yes. as a kind of knee-jerk reaction. And bullying is an important component in the structure that you give us. So um, a little later on, I'm going to want to place it in some context. But what you did in sharing that story was you flipped what we um, the tropes that we expect to see, where instead of talking about where you were bullied by a man, you talked about where you actually inhabited the role of bullying a man. Yeah. And, and it was um, illuminating. Um, how did you, what was it that prompted you to have those aha moments where you could realize you had done that? In that moment, how did you learn what you were doing? Well, in, in this case, the, so the story, the story was I was recording a podcast with, with Russ Laraway, who is a man who I really, I, he was my co-founder at, uh, at, the, at Candor Inc. We were trying to build this app together and someone I had worked with for years at Google, someone I really liked and respected. And so we're recording this podcast and he had some, some questions about something I had said about Amy Cuddy's research. And in fact, I had not, got, I had not read the latest from Amy Cuddy, but instead of listening to his questions, I, I, I just sort of looked at him and I was like, you were born doing the power pose. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, all, it was a group of women. It was all, all women who were recording and producing uh, and, and planning the podcast. And everybody burst out laughing. And, and we shut him down. We just shut him down. And and that was bad. It was bad for the podcast because he was raising a legitimate question. It was bad for him. It was mean to him. Uh, so it was it was just not good for anybody. And, and furthermore, it was not in the spirit of radical candor. It was in the spirit of obnoxious aggression. <laughs> and, uh, and so luckily, we, we were very much focused on giving each other feedback. And so I didn't realize it myself. I mean, he told me and he, he shared with me the impact of, of my words on him personally. And you know, I, I guess if you back off when you realize you've been a bully, t- technically some people wouldn't say it was bullying. But anyway, my definition of bullying is sort of being mean, is is meaning to harm someone. And I did mean to harm Russ with those words. So I'm going to I'm going to call it bullying. <laughs> so, Kim, when you describe that story, it brought up in me 
um, a couple of feelings that I'm a little embarrassed to admit. So one was like, you go girl. But then, <laughs> but then I got to own it because that is mean. And like you said, it's obnoxious. So what is it about bullying that's really happening behind the scenes? And why is it so important that you included it in Just Work as one of these major factors in the way that we can hurt other people? Well, you know, the problem with bullying is that it does work for the bully, usually. I mean, it was very impact. I, I got the response I wanted from everybody. And, you know, you feel kind of good about yourself when you successfully bully someone else. I hate to admit it, but it is true. Being mean often works. And so we need to learn not to allow others to be mean because we don't collaborate. The problem with bullying is that it optimizes for one person, not for the whole team. So it's not collaborative, it's coercive. And, uh, and if our superpower as humanity is collaboration, then it, it's very harmful to collaboration in addition to the individual who is harmed. Uh, and yet it is also very instinctive to, to harm someone else, unfortunately. And so learn, especially when we have been harmed, you would think that if you had been the victim of a lot of bullying, you would be less likely to become the perpetrator of bullying because you know how, how it feels, you know how much how much harm it does. Unfortunately, the opposite is true. We Isn't often, crazy? yeah, I know it is, it is. We often treat other people in the worst ways that we ourselves have been treated. And so just, but this is a pattern. It doesn't mean we're horrible human beings. It is a pattern of human behavior. And we can change our behavior if we recognize the pattern and interrupt it. So I think that's part of the reason why it's so important to, uh, to, to sort of undo the damaging impact that bullying does. I think it's important for another couple of reasons as well. There was recently, I, I saw a tweet, uh, it was an, an interview with one of the journalists who had questioned Harvey Weinstein very early before, before the story really broke. And Harvey Weinstein had grabbed her photographer and like put him in a chokehold and and said some quite abusive things to her in public a bunch of people were around and she went to her editors and she said this is this is not normal behavior is it and they're like oh that's just how leaders are and that is not how leaders are <laughs> they're not, not good ones for yeah, sure not good ones. these are not the kinds of leaders we want so i think it's really important to reframe our thinking around leadership and bullying because People who have power are more likely to bully than people who don't have power, not necessarily because they're worse human beings, but because they can. Uh, and so I think that's really important to recognize. I also think it's really important to recognize the damage that bullying does on, on observers of bullying. Because if you feel like you can't stand up to the bully, you also experience some trauma. I think, and this is something I've really been thinking a lot about just recently. When, when one person bullies another and five people observe it, mm -hmm. all those five people are harmed if they're not in an environment where they can stand up to it. And so it does, does a lot of damage. Um, it's, uh, that alone is a profoundly important insight and thing to think about because it's the ripple effect of the damage that can be created. Yeah. Um, so how do we in those moments when and you 
actually, I'm going to back up for a minute because I want to dive into how we solve this, but I feel like there's a framing that you've provided that's quite brilliant that I want to make sure we cover some of the bases of first. So inherent in the bullying, especially in the case that you provided for us, the example you gave us was a bit of, um, there was a gendered issue there, that he was behaving like a man who always had that advantage, you responding in kind. Connect the dots between that kind of bully and bias and prejudice. Yeah. So if bias is sort of not meaning it and prejudice is meaning it, it's very conscious belief, uh, then bullying is meaning harm. And very often when we bully another person, we're using sort of tropes of bias and, and prejudice. We may not believe it. Like, I don't really believe that all men are assholes, but that was kind of how, <laughs> that was how I was behaving towards, I was using that trope uh, because it can be an effective way to bully. And so I think that recognizing the difference between bias, prejudice, and bullying is really important. And it's important in, in order to respond correctly to it, whether you're the person harmed by it or the upstander or the leader trying to prevent these things from ruining your team's ability to collaborate. Um, so Kim, when we talk about bullying, for me, that leads to three other terms that you gave us, kind of vocabulary terms that I also see as structural elements of discrimination as compared to harassment and physical violations. Connect the dots between bullying and those three things. Yeah. So when my experience is that discrimination tends to happen when someone who who is biased or who has a prejudice has power to put that, uh, that attitude or behavior into practice. Uh, I, th I think harassment happens and sort of more verbal harassment happens when someone who has a tendency to bully has power. And then the bullying becomes much worse, actually. It, it sort of escalates. And, and finally, physical violations happen when, when someone who has power is touching someone else. It, it becomes much more violating. And it could be physical power. You're, you're physically larger. It could be positional power. You're the boss. And it's really interesting how often people who have, some, you don't have to have a lot of power, but people who have some <laughs> power in the world feel more free to just go touch people and uh, people who don't want to be touched and they don't they assume that this is a desired thing and it may not be they think they're sexier because they're more powerful <laughs> and they are not <laughs> um, also inherent in this is um that if we're going to do something about these things whether it's in the way that we're treated or in the way that we treat other people um how can we start to connect the dot how can we learn when we are experiencing these things. Um, and I know it's a complicated question because it's a part of what you wrote about and I have to say it's what um, really resonated with me personally is I looked back at experiences that I had um, it, my first job um, in my early 20s, um, things that at the time I almost didn't think about, except they had an icky feeling inside. And yeah. I didn't know how to connect that these things were part of a world that I was told was normal, but yeah. was really not right. 
Yeah, yeah, we need to disrupt that world and change it, and we can. So I think that there's when when you are harmed by these things or when you are the upstander, there's some simple ways to to think about how to respond. So the first thing I would say is you have an icky feeling, something's not right. You don't have to define it perfectly in the moment. Just respond based on what you think it is. So if you think what you're experiencing is bias, try an I statement, uh, you know, and, and that can be, I don't think you will take me seriously when you refer to me as pretty girl. Uh, may, may, you know, that's an ex to take an example from the book. Or I am actually the decision maker. You are talking to my summer intern right now, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so, so just correcting, it's an I statement invites someone else in to understand the situation from your perspective. However, if you think it is prejudice, an it statement is a better, a better way to go because an it statement kind of makes it clear where that line is between one person's freedom to believe whatever they want uh, and another person's freedom not to have that belief imposed upon them. And that this is like, it's easy to say that. It's hard to define that line when you really get down to it. But an it statement can appeal to the law. It is illegal not to hire someone because of their hair. It can appeal to an HR policy. It is an HR violation not to hire someone because of their hair. Or it can appeal to common sense. It is ridiculous not to hire the most qualified candidate because of their hair. Right. So, so that's an it statement in the, in the face of real prejudice. And what do you do when it's bullying? I think a you statement works much better. You can't talk to me like that. Or if that seems like it might escalate a little bit, you can try a you question. What's going on for you here? Or you can just change the subject. Where'd you get that tie? But a you statement kind of pushes the other person away, whereas an I statement invites them in. And just do what's instinctive for you. My daughter, when she was in third grade, actually explained this to me. She was getting bullied on the playground. And I was recommending an I statement to her. I was like, well, why don't you tell this kid, you know, I feel sad when you throw my sandwich on the floor or whatever. And she kind of banged her fist on the table and she said, mom, he is trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell him he succeeded? And I was like, that is a really good question. <laughs> You shouldn't actually. You're right. Uh, don't use that I statement. Use that you statement. And uh, and so from the mouth of babes, you can use that at work too. Uh, but I, I think a lot of this kind of behavior begins actually when we are in third grade on the playground or in the classroom. Very often teachers are bullies. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but true. Um, so one of the other things that can happen in these moments, because this has also happened to me, is that I'm kind of dumbfounded. I'm so shocked. Yeah. Feelings are so overwhelmed by what's been said, what's occurring that, and I usually don't have a problem talking, but sometimes I found myself speechless. Um, yeah. How is it dangerous? How can we learn not to be silent? When is, how do we work with it when we don't know how to do anything but be silent? Yeah. You know, I think first is let's all cut ourselves some slack. We all have these gobsmacked moments where we don't know what to say. And then we spend, you know, a lot of 3 a.m.s thinking of what we should have said or wish, you know. And so let's like, it's okay that you don't know what to say. But one of my goals in writing this book was to end the default to silence because there were far too many 
instances in my career where I did default to silence. And over time, what I found that did was it robbed me of a sense of agency. And so I think we're very acutely aware of the risks and costs and dangers of speaking up. I think if once I became more aware of the risk of, of remaining silent, I became more likely to say something. So I think when you are the when you're a person who's harmed by bias, prejudice, or bullying, you get to choose your response. My advice is just make it an active choice. If you choose silence, fine. You get that's your prerogative. But make it make it your choice, not a default that that the world has imposed upon you. And then the other thing that has just really helped me is to say, given whether in my gut I think it's bias, I'm going to say the word I and then see what comes out of my mouth next. <laughs> if I think it's prejudice, I'm going to say the word it and then see what comes out of my mouth next. If I think it's bullying, <laughs> I'm going to say the word you and then see what comes out of my mouth next. Kim, I loved that when you shared that because it so spoke to, we may not know how to formulate the whole response, but if we can do it in stages, like just get yeah. self-aware, like, why is this so bad? And do I go, I or you or it? That's yeah. powerful. And then, like you said, it buys you a little time. Yeah. And it's almost like it puts the train on the tracks and you start rolling. Yeah. Momentum is really important. And if you can just say a word, sometimes the rest of the words will follow. <laughs> Makes a huge difference. So in the first half, we touched on a couple of things. One was um, they're in the process of seeing people being bullied or, you know, hurt in some way in the workplace, it doesn't only traumatize the person being hurt. It can traumatize the people around them. And you've yeah. been using this term of upstander, um, which I think is also a, a way of reframing the concept of being a bystander. Could you talk yes. to me a little bit about what that role is and how we can go about inhabiting it in ways that contribute to a just workplace? Yeah, I think as an upstander, the goal is to intervene when you notice bias, prejudice, or bullying, or worse, happening around you. And I, I want to just pause for a moment and and give tribute to the many upstanders throughout my career, because as there was, even though I had a lot of bad experiences, I had way more good experiences, and a lot of them are thanks to the wonderful upstanders who uh, who, who I've worked with. Uh, however, I will I will admit that as as an individual, I often just as I didn't know what to say when these things were directed at me, I didn't know what to say when they were directed at other people. And so one of the things I wanted to do is to leave people with tools. How can you intervene when you notice something? Because it's so awful to notice something and not know what to do. And then you feel like you've been slimed by this thing that happened that even though you weren't directly involved in it, either as the perpetrator <laughs> or the victim, you feel involved. And so it's good to know, it's good for upstanders to have some agency as well. So when we're, I'm gonna describe um, a situation that happened to me and mm -hmm. get some advice about it. It was Perfect. early in my career and um, I was in a meeting with my boss and eight male colleagues mm -hmm. um, who, were my colleagues, but also um, in a, on a, you know, they were faculty, I'm staff. There's a slight hierarchy, but we operated like the eight men and I are colleagues. My boss, who is all of their boss, is far away on the other side of the table. The guys are all around him. Coffee is off to the side. 
And he turns and says, Laura, would you get me a cup of coffee? Oh. <laughs> yeah. And I look at him, I said, Peter, Steve, they're all closer. Why aren't you asking them to get coffee? And he says to me, because you work for me. So do they. Right. In that moment, it was my gobsmack moment. I just did not know what to say. Yeah. To their credit, the men addressed it, but they addressed it after the fact. This was also a while ago before we all had a growing vocabulary for this. In a moment like that, what could have been done differently? The best thing that could have happened is one of those guys could have got up and gotten the coffee. (laughs) Like what they've got legs, they've got a butt, they can, they've got hand that like they can stand up or maybe they don't, maybe they have a wheelchair, but they can go over and get the coffee. Right. Uh, and so, so that's the best thing that could have happened. I'll, uh, I, I so feel those moments. I, I was on a board of directors and the only woman on the board and someone brought coffee and just parked it right outside of the conference room. And nobody got up to go get it. And I literally forced myself to sit on my hands. I was like, (laughs) I will be goddamned if I'm going to get up and get that coffee. But it took, it was, it, I had to fight every, and I literally had to sit on my hands. I had to remind, I had to give myself a physical reminder not to get up and get the coffee. In in part because I wanted a cup of coffee, by the way. Uh, But, but also in part because I just, I knew I couldn't afford to do that. So I think that that what you what I mean, good for you for saying something like and bad for him for not taking the hint. Uh, right. But one of those guys should have gotten up and gotten a cup of coffee. And if he had been the kind of leader that created an expectation, I'll give you another upstander story. Aileen Lee, who started Cowboy VC, one of the great early stage uh, investors here in Silicon Valley tells a story about going into a meeting with two colleagues who are men and everyone they're meeting with from the other company is a man. So they sit down at the long conference room table, uh, Aileen and then the two guys to her left. And then the other side starts filing in. And the first guy sits across from the man to her left. The next guy sits across from him and everybody else files on down the table, leaving Aileen dangling. So kind of not at all unusual. And a lot of psychological experiments, it's about who you sit across from. So kind of a biased seating arrangement. And then the meeting begins and Aileen has the expertise that is gonna win her team the deal with this other team. But as soon as she starts talking, everybody starts asking questions to the men, not to Aileen, who knows the answers. The men do not. Yeah. Uh, Ever seen this happen before, right? (laughs) All the time. And so it happens once, it happens twice, it happens a third time. And Aileen's business partner stands up and he says, I think Aileen and I should switch places. And they do, and it changes the whole dynamic in the room. Yep. whole dynamic in the room is changed. And because the other side didn't intend to ignore Aileen exactly, but somehow it was happening. And so, and he did this for a couple of reasons. One was that he cared about Aileen and he didn't like seeing her get ignored, but also he did it because he wanted to win the deal and he knew that Aileen had the skills, <laughs> the expertise that was needed to win the deal. And so I think this is a really important point about 
about the mentality of the upstander. It's not that he was, he had to stand up for Aileen because she was a damsel in distress. She was not, is not, nobody would describe Aileen Lee that way. He had to stand up to the injustice. He had to stand up for his team's ability to win because they needed Aileen, not because she needed them, but because he needed her, right? So, so that's also part of what I'm trying to get across in the term upstander. I think the term ally has, you know, is, is a little bit problematic. Any word you choose when talking about these topics can become a little bit problematic. But, you know, I think the key thing was in his upstanding was that he needed Aileen, not so much that she needed him. And Do you mind if really... I probe a little bit this question yeah. of what is problematic about the term ally? Because I really appreciated upstander as a concept. Um, so I'd love just a few words on what's wrong with ally or yeah. what's complicated about it. Yeah, I think that what is wrong with the word and there's I mean, there's it's it's a reasonable word i think that the way the, the way that it has that it has often played out is that allyship is uh gets associated with like knight in shining armor or white savior complex where there's a little bit of uh patronizing in uh and that doesn't help that that reinforces the things we're trying to undo here. I think the other problem with ally, kind of like bystander, is that it came to imply, you know, this is optional. I'm doing this as a favor to, you know, as right. a favor to you, not because it is my obligation to do it. Right. Like and, I get bonus points for doing it, not it's the yeah. bare minimum of what I could do. Yeah, yeah. And and and, and also I think it, it doesn't, I mean in theory, you would think that the term ally would imply a lot of self-interest, but it often doesn't. Um, and so so I think those are some of the problems with the word ally. It, it's not quite strong enough. Um, some some people recommended like co-conspirator. Like we are, <laughs> we are working together to change this system, which I liked, but that had other problems as well. So that's, right. that's why so I chose upstander. I love it. So taking um, a step back to it, I loved how you were talking about that there were two different um, potential dynamics at play. You know, one is, um, is there the advocacy for the woman in the room who's not being listened to in that way that we think of these issues under the category of moral imperatives? But mm -hmm. there was a driving business issue here. Yeah. yeah. And um, when I took the whole book in as I was going in piece by piece, taking each concept, looking through it, um, reframing things. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about the thing that really hit me um, and actually was ironically reinforced because I was watching, I was binge watching the morning show, mm -hmm. which I feel is like you could yes. run a masterclass showing yeah. the whole <laughs> season one and use uh. the book to explain what was wrong. Yes. Um, that you've really given us a way of looking at all the components that lead to a just workplace. Yeah. And that, and all these things are factors, bias and prejudice and discrimination. And do we, are we upstanders, upstanders or bullies? It, it all comes into play, including pay, promotion, policy. How do you get businesses to recognize that this is not just a moral imperative, but it is actually going to help the business be more successful in the long run. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is sort of why I called it just work, get shit done fast and fair, is because there is, 
there is an, an element of this that you, you want to do the right thing. And we all, well, most of us want to do the right thing. And there's also an imperative to get stuff done. Like we want to be effective. We just want to work and not have all this nonsense get in the way. And I think for too long, leaders have considered, not just leaders, we all have made this mistake. We, we've sort of decided that, you know, there's three things we don't talk about at work, race, religion, and politics. And the problem with that attitude is that issues of social justice come with us into the workplace. And the distraction is not talking about the prejudice that was just expressed in that meeting or the bias. The distraction is the prejudice or the bias itself. That's what's going to prevent us from getting stuff done. And if we're not willing to talk about it, if we're not willing to confront it, if we're not willing to, to take practical measures to deal with these problems, then the problems will prevent us from getting stuff done. Absolutely. So, Kim, when we think about that role as leaders, how we're shaping our, what we're trying to get done holistically, yeah. um, how we're shaping an entire culture, climate, and set of systems to make that happen. Um, we have a lot of responsibility. We also have a lot of power. And there are times yeah. where we will get it wrong. I mean, yes. that's one of the, the big themes in here is that as much as I'm a woman who has experienced, like you said, some form of bias or prejudice on a regular basis, um, yeah. I'm also a leader and I've misstepped a lot in the course of my career and in my work as leaders, um, as colleagues, when we realize that we've done someone harm, um, what do we do with that? How, how do we start the process of owning it and healing it and fixing it? Yeah, I think as a leader, you, you, your job is really to prevent these things from ruining your team's ability to collaborate and to respect one another. And yet it is inevitable that no matter what good policies you put in place, you will fail to prevent it sometimes. <laughs> and uh, that's the joy of being a leader. You know, your job <laughs> prevents it, but you're going to fail in that job. And so you've got to respond in a way that prevents it from happening again. So in the case of bias, I think one of the, th one of the specific things that I think leaders can do is to create bias disruptors. I think I called them bias interrupters. interrupters. And yeah. after I sent the book in, I was like, I should have called them disruptors. Anyway, <laughs> bias interrupters. And so there's two parts of a bias interrupter. You need to create a shared vocabulary on your team and you gotta get your team involved in choosing the words. I can't just give you the words, you can't just give them the words. But what are, what are you all as a team gonna say when you notice bias in, in a meeting or in the hallway or whatever? Uh, Trier Bryant, my co-founder and I use a purple flag. Uh, and we actually have these purple flags, we wave them. Uh, my editor and I use the word yo. So if I wrote something that was biased, he would just type in yo and I would figure it out. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, some teams I've worked with have used bias alert uh, other teams have used, borrowed some of, of Kahneman's language uh, from his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Whatever the phrase is, choose it carefully and then use it. So when you notice in a meeting something, somebody's ignoring somebody else, somebody's maybe mansplaining somebody else, just say bias alert. And 
by the way, I just used gender examples there, but but there's there, you want to also obviously flag racial bias. You want to flag ableism, and the the way we're going to solve this is with solidarity. We need bias. We all express different different versions of bias, and if we really rely on each other to point them out, then we can eliminate them, and then we can also maybe not be so hard on each other and ourselves. We can we can adopt kind of a growth mindset. So that's your interrupter. You choose the words. I don't, I mean, I do care what, there's some words you shouldn't choose for your bias interrupter, <laughs> but you choose your words. It's worth thinking about the words. And then you also have to teach people whose bias has been interrupted how to respond because we're in shame where it, it is we all mm -hmm. feel a little bit of shame when our bias and so we get defensive and we don't respond well so so you need to sort of create a routine where you if your bias has been pointed out you either you get to say one of two things either i'm sorry thanks for pointing it out i'll try to do better and try is key because changing these vocabulary words it, changing our vocabulary is hard Yes. Uh, so, so I, I don't like to say you guys, it's easy, relatively easy for me to say you all, because I was raised in the South, very difficult for other people. So we have to be patient with ourselves as we change, change our vocabulary. Uh, and two is if you don't understand why, what was said is biased, then you need to say, I don't quite understand. Can you explain to me mm -hmm. after the meeting? And the reason the after the meeting part is so important is that we won't get shit done if we spend all <laughs> every meeting uh, talking about, but, but we do need to educate ourselves. And so that's, that's what leaders can do for bias. For example, a specific thing, I'm just not going to solve the whole problem, but at least we'll take a step in the right direction. And Kim, I, part of what sounds so doable about this is that um, it sounds like it starts from a place of saying we are our biasy. All of us are going to have our subconscious biases reveal themselves. Yeah, we all want to change this, but we can't do it if somebody doesn't help us see them. So we're in this together. It's yeah. not meant to be an attack on one person. It becomes a group norm that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to flag it, but I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to flag some bias language, which I myself used in the book. So I hired a, a bias buster uh, to, to read the book and point out biased language that I was using. And one of the things her name is, is Breeze Harper, by the way, I highly recommend her. So one of the things she pointed out is that I often use the word see when what I really meant was notice or understand. And, and I realized that this was really true. And I felt it, it was sort of like the case of Aileen Lee. One of the other people who was helping me edit the book is Zach Shore, a historian, brilliant thinker, clear thinker, understands things very, very quickly and also blind. And so, so A, I wanted to use, I didn't want to use sloppy, words matter to me. I didn't want to use sloppy metaphors. And B, I didn't want to use words that would hurt Zach. So I really thought I had corrected this in the book. And right before I turned it in, I had used sort of what I'll call sloppy site metaphors 99 times in a 350 wow. page book. <laughs> so even after I was aware, so it's hard. It's really, it's easy to say interrupt bias and it'll all go away. It's going to take some persistence. So in, um, looking at that dynamic and it comes up over and over again, and we have to keep learning about it. Yeah. Um, 
beyond the way that we can do it with our teams, if we want to do it in an organization, mm -hmm. um, who within the organization do you work with to help raise these sensitivities? I want to think about this and build these skills. Um, do you see it working well when it's coming out of HR, when it's coming out of DE&I, when it's coming out of organizational learning, and it's coming out of management training? Where do you locate, like when you really want to do this, not just on your own team with 20 people in a meeting, but at scale? Yeah. Where are the places that you see think organizations can begin to put in these multiple prongs to stimulate and support change? Yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, the the you don't overdel. I think the the your HR team, your D DEI team have a crucial role to play, but you don't want to overdelegate to these teams. You want to use them to help you, but you can't you can't just throw throw it over the wall, right? You, so, so in an ideal world, a CEO would stand up and say, <clears throat> we're going to roll out bias interrupters. And in every meeting, every day, you know, at least two or three times, bias should be interrupted in a meeting because it's happening. And if we're not interrupting it, we're reinforcing it. And one CEO I worked with was working on changing his language around standing up in front of the company and saying, you guys. And at first he wanted to change his vocabulary and then announce he had done it, but he realized it, that might take a year. Right. And, so, and so he was willing to, to be vulnerable enough to say he was working on this, to say he was probably going to fail multiple times and to ask others to, to interrupt his bias. When he used the word you guys instead of you all, I think, or folks or whatever he decided to use, then uh, then he wanted people to point it out to him. And so I think you know a little bit of leadership from the top goes a long way, but then you got to get every manager at your company doing this. And this is hard and, and you're going to have a lot of resistance. So that's where your L&D team or your HR team or your DEI team can, can help sort of teaching people, reminding people how to, how to roll this out. So in the book you had, there were a lot of beautiful, like really fantastic phrases, but one I really loved was this idea that communication is measured at the listener's ear. Yes. And, you know, when we talk about cultural change and leadership, I think all too often as leaders, we focus on what we're saying. Hopefully mm -hmm. we're also focusing on how it's being heard. Um, as we start to try and make sure that whether it's not saying you guys or sending the messages out so that they, they land in the way that we hope, um, what are ways that we can start to learn how are we being heard? Yeah, I think a big, one very specific thing I would suggest is just try to just try to eliminate from your vocabulary oh you're being too sensitive because <laughs> because that is a refusal to listen that is a refusal to communicate actually and so so really trying to understand how things are landing and being curious about how things are landing for other people by the way i think i stole that communication gets measured at the listener's ear and i can't remember i think i stole it from stephen cubby but i want to <laughs> i want to acknowledge whoever it was i stole it from um so so i think one of the things we can do is is really be curious about how our words are landing for other people because when we communicate with others, we communicate on two planes at once. One is intellectual and the other is emotional. 
And if we refuse to take into account the emotional component of communication, we will not communicate well. We just won't. Yeah. And so I, that's, that's my, that's what I have to say on that. <laughs> So Kim, you're uh, clearly doing work beyond just writing a book. You started yeah. a new organization. Um, can you tell us with the few minutes we have left, why and what the organization is doing? Yeah. So in a lot of ways, I would describe myself as a person who's had a lot of root canals uh, and so I, and I can, can describe them pretty well. But what I really wanted to do is to, and I had a lot of ideas about how root canals could go better, uh, but what I really, and how to avoid root canals more importantly, uh, but what I really wanted to do is partner with someone who knew where the rubber met the road. And so I, I met Trier Bryant, who had been a chief people officer at tech companies. She had done DEI training at in the military, had deep experience in a lot of different in, in a lot of different industries. Also in uh, she worked at Goldman Sachs. And she really knew how, you know, where these ideas, how to roll them out, how to implement them, how to make this stuff stick, how to make it real. And uh, and so I was lucky enough. Uh, to become her co-founder, and she's the CEO of Just Work, and we, and we help organizations who, you know, leaders will often say, "I like the idea of the bias interrupter, but gosh, it, it feels kind of hard." And so we we help them uh, roll these ideas out, put them into practice. What size organizations are you working with? We are working with everyone from Fortune 50 companies to little bitty startups, uh, 10 person companies and, uh, and 100,000, 300,000 person companies. So something you noted it in various points of the book because it's part of that culture of startups. Um, I remember talking with Beth Comstock about this as well and looking at the difference between a startup versus say, a, you know, a giant like GE that they often, um, HR structures are not in place when they're built. They often yeah. are born out of previous relationships with people who are very like-minded. Um, yeah. For those early startups, if you were gonna point them in one direction, where would it be to begin with? The most important thing you can do if you are starting a company is to realize, you, you probably don't wanna think about it this way, but you've gotta realize that you are building your very own Stanford prison experiment. That's not how you like to think as you build out these structures. And the best thing you can do to ensure good behavior and not terrible behavior that we saw in the Stanford prison experiment is to create checks and balances on power. Power corrupts, even a little bit of power corrupts and your power is gonna corrupt you. And so the more you can, can organize and structure your systems for justice, then the less you're gonna have systemic injustice play out at your company. So it's really, if you think you're making a decision, make sure there's somebody else that you who can double check your decision, whether it's about hiring or promotion or yes. about providing opportunities. Exactly, exactly. And make sure when you hire HR that they have a direct line to the board and, uh, and can go around you if you're the CEO, because very often it's the CEO who's creating the problems. And I say this as a CEO who created problems sometimes. <laughs> Kim, you are also now an author who is creating remarkable solutions and deep insight. And I can't thank you enough for making time for us. For people who want more Kim Scott, where can they find you and the work that you're doing? Justworktogether.com is our website. We got a lot of resources there or uh, follow us at Just Work Book or at Kim Ball Scott on Kim, Twitter. Thank you so much.
And thank you everyone for joining us today. If you have a question about something you heard, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at our handle at SXM Business, me at Laura Zarrow, and get us wherever you get your podcasts, Women at Work and Laura Zarrow. Many thanks as always to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, our great sound engineer, Chris Tukes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We were born to do For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.